And um, our text for this morning is really just a wonderful section of scripture as we will be covering verses 12 through 14. Not many verses, but a whole lot that we can really dig into and there'll be a real encouragement to the body of Christ, I trust. I'll start by reading these verses and then after we can see how these apply. All right, Colossians chapter 3, we're beginning in verse 12. Hear now the words of the living and true God. The Apostle Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Amen, indeed. Now, in this um, final section that began all the way back in verse 1, that runs down to verse 17, Paul returns to this clothing metaphor as he exhorts the believers in Colossae to now put on a series of godly virtues that are consistent with our new man, the new self. You know, oftentimes we can tell a lot about people in our society by the way they dress, whether it be from police officers and firefighters or um, postal carriers and our military. Um, people wear the uniform of their profession. And that's really the metaphor that Paul's using here in Colossians chapter 3, that we are to dress in a manner consistent with our calling. Now, over the last couple of weeks, Paul's focus has been on the things that we're to put off. For example, and by way of review, in verse 5, he said, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In verse 8, he says, You must put them all away, anger, wrath, slander, and so on. And then again, in verses 9 through 10, he says, seeing that you have put off the old, put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. So those were the things that were to take off. And now in verse 12, Paul lists the things that we are to put on. So as we walk through this text, I've broken up into four headings to help us apply these truths. And you'll see those on the back of your bulletin. And first, we make note of our calling. We need to start with our calling, who we are as believers in Christ. Notice that there in verse 12, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, before Paul tells us things we're to put on, he reminds us of our position in Christ. And by noting these designations, he reminds us that the gathering of God's people is supposed to be different than the world. Why, you ask? Because we are different. In verse 1, you have died with Christ. In verse 3, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Because verse 4, Christ is your life. Therefore, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on these things. Now, let's, before we get into the putting on, let's look at first what our calling is. He, he reminds us we are chosen by God. 
for chosen is the Greek word eklektos, eklektos, eklektos is better. It's where we get a word our, our election from. And it means to select or, or to be chosen out of. And if you are in Christ, it means before the foundation of the world was laid, God's eternal love and affection was upon you as he sovereignly chose you out of the mass of fallen humanity. We see this clearly described for us in texts like Ephesians 1 verse 4 where Paul says, just as he, God the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Was this according to anything that you did? No, it was according to what? The kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which is freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Listen, people have argued over this beautiful truth for centuries, and all I can tell you is, you don't have to understand it all. The Lord knows I don't. But you must believe it because it's a truth that is taught all throughout the scriptures. God is sovereign in your salvation. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. First John 4, 19, the apostle says, we love because what? He first loved us. It's everywhere. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, that we should always give thanks to God. That's what you should be doing instead of arguing about this. Give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So God did not call us according to our works, but as 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says, according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And so the doctrine of election should be something that brings you great comfort, not confusion. You ought to rest in the fact that you are in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, that he is your Lord and Savior, and that you've been saved by his grace through faith, that you are one of the chosen ones of God. That is your calling. And I fear sometimes even those among us who um, love theology and have correct biblical understanding that if we're not careful, we'll miss the comfort of this wonderful truth that it brings. That you in grace, beloved, have been called by the Lord and are his chosen ones. But we're called not only as his chosen ones, but secondly, we're called to be holy. Now, what does being holy mean? It means being set apart. That your life belongs to Christ. That you have been bought with a price. That you are not your own. That just as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all that you do. And this is the calling for those who have put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And then thirdly, he reminds us that we are called in love, that we are the beloved. 
Now, I don't know if you've noticed this yet or not, but all three of these terms, God's chosen people, holy and beloved, are descriptions of God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 6 through 8, you'll see all three of these in just these few verses. It says in verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. For of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. There, there was nothing special. You weren't greater in size or in scope, but verse 8, because the Lord loved you. He kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So by Paul using these well-known Old Testament designations for God's chosen people on the Gentiles here in Colossae, he's supporting what he said back in verse 11 that we studied last week. For here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or, or, or uncircumcised, but Christ is all and is in all. We are all now one family in Christ. In fact, listen to the similarities of 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 through 10, and what I just read from Deuteronomy 7, as Peter encourages the church who is suffering for the sake of the gospel. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And we see the grafting in of the Gentiles. So why is it that we live life in a different way? Why would we embrace that? Here's why. Because we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved by him. So don't be too quick to move past that. Because if you don't understand our calling, you're going to miss the reason why we live a certain way. This isn't just about our strength and our desire to do what is right. This is about what God has done and is doing in your lives. All of these realities, you're chosen by God, you've been set apart by God, you're loved by God. All these realities have been given to us, not earned by us. This is our calling, not our accomplishments. So we must stop and remind ourselves, first and foremost, that who we are is because of what Christ has done for us. That's where we begin. But he goes on from there, not just our calling, but secondly, he's going to talk about our character. Our character. There's a certain character with which we are to clothe ourselves with. And as those who have been chosen by God, set apart unto God, and, and greatly loved by God, Paul says, here's how we are to live. We pick it up in verse 12. He 
He says, with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And let's just take a moment and look at each of these words because these are the garments of grace, I'm calling them. These are the garments of grace that we are to clothe ourselves with and they share a close resemblance to the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And all these qualities are characterized in the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First, he says we should have compassionate hearts. Literally here, what he says is the bowels of mercy. The bowels of mercy. And he's speaking figuratively here of, of a deep felt emotion one feels inwardly as you experience compassion upon someone else. In our vernacular today, if we were experiencing a heavy weight over something or a sense of loss, we might say, um, my stomach was in knots or, or my heart feels just so heavy. And, and what we're talking about is that part of us that, that feels this thing so deeply within us. And so he says, as believers, we are to have a compassionate heart. In other words, he's saying as God's people, we're to feel deeply for each other. Yes, we spend time in, in study together as sharpens iron sharpens iron. Uh, so one person sharpens another. Um, we want to be trained and equipped. But the Christian life is not just about um, studying. Um, we're not just theological robots. There needs to be a connection with one another. In truth, yes, but also with compassion. Or it will never grow into a loving relationship that thrives and grows with actual substance and trust between one another. It just won't happen. In a word, we're to be compassionate. The things that we learn about God's word should make us more caring and, and more compassionate for others. In fact, this divine quality was perfectly exhibited by Jesus all throughout his earthly ministry. It says in Matthew 9, 35 through 36, after Jesus said, gone through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and sickness, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Of course, we remember that great scene in, in John chapter 11 when Jesus wept, that he was so deeply moved in his spirit over man's brokenness and in the morning and love over Mary and Martha for their brother. And we see all throughout the Gospels, Jesus being just deeply moved as he witnessed the pain and suffering around him. Our Lord was not a stoic Lord. So as those who have been chosen by God, we're also to put on a heart of compassion. Do you have compassion? Second, we're to clothe ourselves with kindness. If a compassionate heart speaks of how you feel towards somebody, kindness is that feeling put into action. It's grace in action. It's the opposite of what we looked at last week in verse 8. Put away anger, wrath, malice, slander. Instead, put on kindness. Jesus uses this same word in Matthew eleven thirty 30 when he said, For my yoke is easy. And what he means is, it's not hard to bear. My bur the burden is light. It's the Greek word, uh, Christos, Christos, 
and it means gentleness, goodness, and, and of course, kindness. And this is what's to inform our evangelism as we think about sharing the gospel with the world. For as Romans 2, 4 says, it was the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so when we think about grace, that grace must be put into action, and that grace in action is what we call kindness. Kindness refers to the grace that permeates through the whole person, softening any area of us that might be harsh. Let that grace upon grace wash over you and to make you kind towards one another. So when we pro proclaim the gospel, we're, we live out the gospel, uh, we display the gospel with how we relate with one another. John 13, was it not that Jesus says, this is how they'll know you, by how well you love one another. Though you know you're a follower of mine. And so when we do this, we are demonstrating the kindness that God showed towards us. That now we in turn are to show to one another. And the next, Paul says that we're to clothe ourselves with humility. Now, humility is the opposite of pride, right? It's the opposite of demanding our own way. It's the absence of um, the self, self-exaltation. The people of God are humble people. Humility characterized the life of Christ and is one of the most cherished Christian virtues we see in all of scripture and I can't help but think of Philippians 2 I know a well-known verse but this demonstrates such a wonderful example for us verses 1 through 8 where the apostle Paul writes therefore if there is any consolation in Christ if any comfort of love if any fellowship of the spirit if any affection and mercy Paul says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, one mind. He says, verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, the new King James says. That's humility, the lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Notice verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Think about that. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, <laughs> made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave. In fact, Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so humility marked the life of Christ, no more so than when he humbled himself 
coming obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. And so Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the mind of a true believer. And so in Philippians and in Colossians, Paul says to put on humility. Put on humility. Fourth is this word, meekness. Now, um, meekness is kind of a hard word in our English language to fully define. The NIV translates it gentleness, which is okay. Um, I like the way one lexicon defines the term. It says that's the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. That really spoke to me. Let me read it again to you. It is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. That's meekness. It's that I'm not overly impressed with myself. And I have a real sense of compassion and gentleness for others instead. In fact, gentleness is the word Paul uses in Galatians 6. If we are to restore a brother or sister who sinned against us. A crucial text that everybody should know. Galatians 1 through 4. Galatians 1 verse 6 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Same word. Considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And this is how you restore a brother or sister who has sinned. You do so with a spirit of gentleness. You come in low. Why? Your intent is to do what? Restore them. Not to win an argument, show them you're right, or expose them or embarrass them. It's to restore them. That's, that's gentleness and humility that's supposed to exist within the body of Christ. And then what does Peter say, actually? And, and this uh, also applies to other areas of life. In, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, when someone will ask you about the reason for the hope that is in you, you do it with gentleness and respect when we're proclaiming the gospel, defending the gospel. We do this also with gentleness and respect. So these aren't just ideas that we're supposed to study. These are ways that we are to live. That we are to live. And then he says at the end of um, verse 12, we're to put on patience. This is the Greek word, markothromea, marko meaning big, thumos, a thermos, something that gets hot. And the idea behind the word is um, we're not to become um, quickly hot. That's the idea, to be patient, not easily heated. Not easily made angry. If in your life, in your relationships, you become quickly angry, or if you are quickly assuming the worst in somebody, if your conversations or disagreements get quickly heated, that's the opposite of how he calls us to live. We are to be patient people. I want you to notice that all of these, having a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, all of these must be lived out among other people. Among other people. You can't display kindness just by yourself. Right? And there's no reason to be humble if you're sitting alone in a room. 
These things demand that we are around other people in order to demonstrate these clothes of grace. But when, you know, you find a church that not only would preach this, but would actually live this out, you don't want to leave. You don't want to leave. This is why there's a part of you that after you've sung the songs and praised Christ Jesus, and you've heard the word being taught, and the prayers that have gone up in prayer, when the service is over, there's that part of you that thinks, I just want to stay and talk to these people. I just want to be around these people. Why? Because this is not the way the world lives. This is the way that we're not, that, that's not, we don't treat it, it, one another in the world this way. The world treats one another nothing like this. We are to be different. What Paul just described is the way that believers live. But you know, that when you go back to work tomorrow or you go to the store tomorrow, this is not the way that you're going to be treated back. Okay? And there's that part of us that when we're around like-minded people who really believe this and, and live this out, it's just so sweet. And you just never want it to end. And I hope you all have relationships like that with one another. And this is how a church should be. That when you look around at each other, you can say, that person was so kind to me. And that man was so humble. And that woman showed such compassion to me. And its leaders were just so patient with us. And so to keep with Paul's metaphor, it's just like putting on layers upon layers of these warm garments of grace on a frigid winter New England day. One layer on top of another on top of another until the church is dressed in a way that reflects the character of Christ. So, we've seen, number one, our calling in Christ. Number two, our character in Christ. That brings us now to point number three, our conduct in Christ. Our conduct. Because, again, ultimately, our theology has to be worked out in real life with real people. It's not enough just to come to church and, and listen to the sermons and to write down some notes. The reason we do that is so we can remember it in order to help us to live these things out. We don't want to just talk about what a godly husband should do the godly men in this church need to go home and actually live that out to their wives. We don't just want to talk about the importance of discipleship. We need to go and spend some time with people and make disciples. <laughs> right? Well, the same thing is true here in Colossians 3. These aren't just theological words to consider. We've got to actually live these things out. And so after telling people what to wear, Paul's going to remind them of the purpose of why you've dressed this way. That's the metaphor that Paul's using here. It's not just about getting dressed in the spiritual realm. It's so you and I can go live this thing out in real life among real people and do what God has called us to do. So that's Paul's idea that you were to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience so that you can go and do the work. Two things specifically in verse 13 that he calls us to do. Number one. We are to be bearing with one another. It actually means to hold up one another. And in difficult times, it means to actually 
put up with one another. Uh, it means that we fight against divisions in the church. We endure, we persist together. We're to demonstrate some of that patience we just put on, verse 12. And beloved, this isn't optional. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, these are the clothes we dress with. So we put on all these things, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and we bear with each other. And in doing that, we prevent the church from dividing up into all different uh, groups and, and cliques and, and camps. And we want to fight against that, and we do it by doing the very things he tells us to do next. Notice the rest of verse 13, as here he gives us two specific things to do. First, he says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This word forgiven means to pardon, to show favor to. In the most literal sense, it means to be gracious. And the text uses what's called a reflection pronoun. So it literally reads, forgiving yourselves. Forgiving yourselves. <laughs> forgiving ourselves. Not me forgiving myself, we're forgiving ourselves. Which means the church as a whole is to be gracious, mutually forgiving fellowship. That's what the church is. As a whole, it's to be a gracious, mutually forgiving fellowship and that's what the text says if one of you has a complaint against one another keep on forgiving each other and the wording really helps us here because the word here used uses the word complaint and it gives us the idea that it's a legitimate complaint in other words if someone in the church legitimately has a reason to be upset about something what are we commanded to do? We are commanded to forgive them. And you say, but they said something about me that was really hurtful. And what Paul is saying here is not that sin doesn't matter, because it does, and God will deal with that. God will deal with that. And we know Matthew 18 and how to confront sin, but this is speaking specifically in the context of this passage he begins this section by saying, remember, you are God's chosen ones. You've been set apart for his glory. And just as the Lord has forgiven you, you also, child of God, must forgive one another. And the language here speaks to the proportion of something or to the uh, degree of something. Forgive each other to the degree of which you have been forgiven. Think about that. How has the Lord forgiven you? And let that be the standard on how you're forgiving one another. The next time you're struggling to forgive somebody, ask yourself, how has the Lord forgiven me? Think about it. He's forgiven us freely. He's forgiven us fully. He's forgiven us willingly. By his grace. As he's forgiven you, let that be the way you forgive one another. And if we can get this part right, 
This is how the church lives in a place of peace and love and joy. True joy. Let us forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven us freely, fully, willingly. If this church ever forgets that, what this church will become is a place that's so divided. Sure, we might agree on some doctrine, but we won't have any relationships with one another. And at that point, it ceases to be a New Testament church. It really does. (laughs) It really does. The reason we're called to these things is because we're supposed to live our lives together as the family of God. As the family of God. That when you're suffering and you're going through some things, you're never alone. God has given you a brother. God has given you a sister in Christ that you can call upon and to support you in a time of need. And when we really do life like that, man, things can get messy, if we're honest, right? We've probably all been hurt. We've probably all said something we probably shouldn't have said. And we can say things and do things that that's the result. So ultimately, since we know that's part of our fallenness, we've got two choices. Number one, you just withdraw from people and leave the family of God. Go home. Or number two, you need to learn to forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you. That's the two choices we got. It's that simple. That leads us to point number four in our covering in Christ. What is the final garment that Paul says binds all of these things together? Notice what it says as he continues in verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now there is some discussion among scholars of how to best understand the first part of verse 14. And above all these, put on love. The New American Standard Bible takes it to mean beyond all these things put on love. The New King James Bible says it's above all these things put on love. The NIV translates it and over all these virtues put on love. And that interpretation probably best keeps with the metaphor Paul's using here that over all of these clothing, all of the clothing that we are to put on, not above it, over it, we're putting it on Put on love. Seal it with love. Because love binds everything else together in perfect harmony. And I think there's two ways to rightly understand this. First is that love is what binds all these other virtues together. The compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Love is what binds all that together. And then secondly, love is what binds us to each other. Right? I love you. I love you guys. I love you. And love is what binds us together. To try to practice these virtues apart from love is what? Legalism. They must flow from love, which in turn, the fruit of the Spirit-filled life produces. Nothing is acceptable to God if not motivated by love. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith 
so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is a love that is uniquely and distinctly Christian. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And is what binds everything together in perfect harmony with one another. The world should know who we belong to by what we wear. People should see from the way that we live that we belong to Christ. This is how we are to love our neighbor as ourself. This is how we keep the unity within the body of Christ, by being people who live like Christ, who reflect the one that we come to worship. In closing, I do want to draw your attention to one last thing, and I think it would be easy for us to miss miss it here. In all of this talk about how we're to live and what we're to put on and how we're to forgive and, and all these really helpful directions here that should describe our life, I want to make sure you don't miss something that's very obvious as we close this morning. Um, and that is that we can do all of this because the Lord has forgiven you. You've been forgiven. If you're a believer, don't miss that truth today. That you are loved by God and you are forgiven. It would be possible to look at a text like this and to feel so much conviction because we want to live in a way that is pleasing to God. We want to love God, love our neighbor, and the Lord knows how we have fallen short of this in our lives. We all have. And if the Holy Spirit convicts you of these sins, I encourage you to respond in obedience to him. It's not what I'm saying here. But I just don't want you to miss the obvious truth that's here. That as God's children, you are forgiven of your sins. Rest in that truth today. And be encouraged by being reminded of the truth of the cross that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed i'm reminded of a story as we close that i've read a couple of times over a couple different places through the years of a, a young man who went wayward and his life um, very much resembled mine and could have been uh, the life that that i had if God had not intervened. This young man had committed a number of crimes. He was charged, and eventually he was convicted of his crimes, and he was sentenced to prison. 
Um, before the trial, the father let his son know how much shame the actions of the son had brought upon the father and the family. And that relationship was now essentially broken as the disturbed man went off to prison. As time goes on in prison and the man is serving his time, um, he doesn't hear from his father as the years go by. Um, the family hasn't come and visit him. Um, there hasn't been any time they received any letters, though he's written them. But he knows that his family has grown up. They've been very poor. His father didn't know how to read or write. And so his hope was that they didn't come visit because they had no money to travel and that he simply hadn't written back to his son because he didn't know how to. And the time had come when he was going to be set free eventually, this man. Uh, he had served his sentence over many, many years, and he found out that it was going to be just a couple weeks away that he was going to be released. And so he asked the guard if he could have a piece of paper and a pencil so that he could write his father one last letter apologizing for his crime, apologizing for the shame that he had brought up upon the family. He said, in the letter, I have nowhere else to turn. I'm about to be released. I have no home. I have nowhere to go. He wrote, I don't know if you would welcome me back. I don't know if you would forgive me. But they're going to put me on a train when I leave this prison. And I've got to get off somewhere and make that my new home. And the son knew that at the family farm close by, where the train would go by, there was an apple tree. And so he continued in his letter saying to his father, if you have it in your heart to forgive me, would you take a single white ribbon and to tie it onto the apple tree? And when the train goes by, if I see that ribbon, I'll know I've been forgiven. I'll know that I'm welcome home. If you can't forgive me, I understand. And if I don't see a ribbon, I'll just know that I'm not welcome there. And I'll just get off at a different stop and try to build my life somewhere else. Well, the day comes and the man's released from prison and he gets on the train and he's seated there in the, in the window seat. And there's a person sitting beside him across the aisle. And that person sees that this man is jittery and he's nervous and he's deeply troubled and inquires, what's the matter? And the broken man who's been crying says, I've been in prison for a long time for crimes that I committed and I'm so ashamed. And, and the broken man tells him the arrangement that he had made with his father in the letter that in just a couple short miles from now, he's going to be going by his dad's farm and he's going to be looking out that window at that apple tree and if he sees a single white ribbon on it, he says, I'll be forgiven. I'm welcome home. And if not, I have nowhere to go. The man was so overcome with nervousness and angst, he couldn't even look out the window anymore. And, and so the one sitting beside him on the aisle switched seats with him. And, and he traded seats and he said, I'll look out the window um, and I'll tell you um, when we come upon the farm that broken man said. And and uh, look to see if there's a ribbon on that tree for me from my father. And so they made the exchange. The ex-convict then said, it's just up here a little bit further. You'll see the farm. And, and 
the next tree you'll see is, is my father's apple tree. And so the son couldn't even stand to look. He just buried his, his head in his hands. And as the, the train began to, to stop past the spot, the son was trying to decide whether or not he was going to be getting off at the stop. And so the broken man just grabbed the arm of the man looking out the window, and he said, tell me, is there a, a single ribbon on the apple tree that my father has left? And, and the one looking out the window said, no, there's not a single ribbon on the apple tree. And the man bowed his head into his hands again, knowing that that meant that he had no home to go to. And, but the one looking out the window said, there's not a single ribbon, I've got to tell you. There are hundreds. Hundreds tied all over the tree. And then son knew what that meant. That means my father forgives me. And I'm welcome home. My brothers and sisters, while you try to navigate life and live a certain way, don't forget this, that you as a child of God is loved by your heavenly Father and you are forgiven of your sins and you are now welcomed at the Father's table. Now knowing what you've been forgiven of and, and how deeply you've been loved, now go as he's forgiven you and go love and forgive one another. Amen. And when you find a body of believers who will really live like that, You'll never want to leave because that's the New Testament church in action. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the love of Christ, you've never had your sins forgiven, I want to encourage you to know that this is your day. The Bible teaches that we are all sinners and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. But God in love, put forth his son, Jesus Christ, that on the cross he, he took upon our sins upon himself. And the wrath of God, instead of pouring out on us, was poured out on the blameless son that the righteousness of Christ could be imputed. It could be given to you that those who by faith believe in his name shall be saved. Not by their works, not by their achievements, not by anything that they've done, by grace through faith. And if you're wondering today, will the Lord forgive me? Does the Lord love me? Am I welcomed at his table? The Bible says that God demonstrated his love this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If this is the day that you would repent of your sins and turn to Christ with a pierced heart, with empty hands, reaching to Christ, he will welcome you. Our Lord is so gracious, and he's rich in mercy. And so come to the cross. Seek the Lord Jesus where he may be found. If you need prayers this morning, I want to invite you to come forward. We would love to pray for you. At this time, I want to invite you to please stand. And we sing the song of invitation. Thank you.